So who of you have got a discipleship guide and are currently working through it? Like you're either being mentored or you're mentoring somebody. Just stick your hand up if you are. Okay, so quite a few people. We've, uh, we've actually run out because uh, the, the 150 we've printed have gone. We've saved a few for those that um, make a commitment to Christ over this time. And so uh, if somebody does that, we want to be able to give one to them as a first step in uh, beginning that process of discipleship. But if you've got one and you're not yet using it, start using it, okay? That's just a great thing to do with it. Don't use it as a paperweight. Um, I'm going to ask the Holy Spirit to come visit you in your home and bring a conviction upon you to use this. Matt and I were having a chat earlier this week, and we were saying how it's as much about the material that we go through, which is really important and foundation laying and I think essential for our Christian walk going forward. But um, equally important is just spending time one-on-one with somebody else every week, that somebody's paying attention, that you are having a conversation, a spiritual conversation, you're being challenged to grow in Christ. I think that's um, of profound importance. So please don't use it as a paperweight. Um, so this morning I am, my, my preach this morning is where are you going? I'm preaching in essence um, alongside this vision magazine which has come out. This is in large part very similar to what our previous vision magazine was. We have written, rewritten all of it, though to try and make it a little bit more brief. We realized that the time that people spend reading this magazine perhaps was, was a bit long. It's easier to get through it in some ways but also to clarify where we stand in this next season, what God is speaking to us about for what's coming up. And you might be wondering why I'm even preaching here today, because I had promised you that Tony Johnson would be here. Tony um, um, and Linda from India were supposed to arrive on Tuesday on Monday. They went for the PCR test, and it turned out that they're just too positive to travel. And so they're home now recovering from their positivity, and uh, India wants them to stay with them for a few more days. And when they're... uh, when that's passed by, we will relook at another date for them to come. It's our new super flexible, blessed are the flexible for they will not break um, stance that we're in right now. We just go with the flow and move with it. And so we've been waiting for a gap to actually um, be able to give this to you, to speak on it a bit. And Tony's uh, presented us with that gap right now. And so we'll hopefully we'll have them soon with us. In this, there's a, the, the opening um, article is actually on how to use this magazine. So that's a good place to start. At the end of it, I tell the story from Alice in Wonderland. I don't tell the story. The author of Alice in Wonderland tells the story, but I quote from the story where Alice, the heroine of the story, obviously comes to this fork in the road and she just has no clue whether she should take the left or the right. And perhaps hoping for some inspiration, she looks up and she sees this Cheshire cat grinning and sitting in the tree. And she says to the cat, which way should I go? It depends, says the cat. It depends on what, says Alice. Well, it depends on your destination. Where are you going? I don't know, said Alice. Then, said the cat, his grin growing all the bigger, it doesn't really matter which way you go. And that's actually the story of life. If we don't know where we're going, it doesn't matter which way we go. We just wander around and around in circles. We bump off this thing, obstacle. We bump into the next one. And uh, everybody knows how important it is for us to have a sense of where it is that God has called us individually and us together to actually be going. Even Sheikh Mohammed knows this. Recently, I was uh, a couple of months ago, actually, I was driving up to Ras al early one morning. And you know they've got those digital screens over the freeways now that they can throw up Happy Birthday Q8 or whatever it is. And as I was driving um, through that morning, I saw for the first time I had never seen it before was Dubai, not 2020, Dubai 2040. 
and uh, I tried to catch the tagline that was underneath it. I was going a bit fast, so as I raced under that one, I just got the first few words, and each time I went under, I got a couple of words from it, eventually figured it out, and I wasn't speeding. I was just going normal Dubai speed, you know, and uh, I thought it was so brilliant. Dubai 2020 has come and gone. I mean, you'll say, well, the expo is still going to happen, but I don't know if it was ever about the expo. I think it was about giving people something to aim for. Like, we're building something here. Yeah, Sheikh Zayed had a dream, and uh, we, we're building something. The, 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 those that have succeeded in him are, are following that same vision. They're just giving us markers along the way to aim for. And 2020 was a marker. And now they're saying, don't just look five years ahead. Don't worry about whether we'll be here in five years. We're going to be here in five years. In fact, look 20 years into the future. And the tagline, which I finally figured out, was the, the answer to the question, if you were to say to Sheikh Mohammed, where are we going? He would say, we're going to the place where we build Dubai to be the greatest city in the world to live in. Now, you may not, that may not be your dream, it may not be your desire, but that's clearly what they've articulated, it's clearly what they're working towards, and which um, we get to share a part of because we're in this city. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at the crucifixion of Christ and his resurrection. And one of the things that comes through so clearly, if, if you kind of give some time to that, is even if you read through the Gospels from beginning to end, is that Jesus had incredible mission clarity. In fact, he had kingdom mission clarity. And I believe it's something that every single believer ought to have. Jesus understood from the very outset when he could understand anything where he was going. He knew he was going to the cross. In the days leading up to the cross, um, John quotes him in in his, in his gospel, in chapter 12, verse 27, where he asks this rhetorical question. He says this, now my heart is troubled. Like I'm, like I'm anticipating what's to come and, and I'm, I'm, I'm anxious, I'm, I'm aching, I'm anticipating the, the pain, the suffering that will come my way. And he says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? And it's one of the rhetorical questions where the answer is obviously no, and Jesus answers it in the, in the rest of the verse. He says, no, for it is the... For this very reason I came to this hour. Jesus understood the reason he was born. The reason for his life was to actually go to the cross. And he understood as well what he would accomplish upon that cross. His intent was to destroy the power of sin and death that held us all captive. So that we could be released and uh, brought into relationship with him and spend an eternity as his people. And so Paul can declare triumphantly in 1 Corinthians 15... Where, O oh death, oh sorry, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh death, where is your victory? O oh death, where is your sting? And that's what Christ accomplished and knew he was accomplishing. And finally, he knew why he was going to the cross. God had purpose in his love to set apart for himself a people. And um, in order to do that and be just and the justifier, Christ had to die upon that cross. See, God couldn't just take our sins and sweep it under the carpet and say, look, let's just ignore that. Couldn't take what I've done, the, thing, the way that I've hurt other people and say, look, Rob, we just not, we're going to ignore that. We're not worry about it. What about the people that, that say, well, God, I thought you were just. I thought you were true. And if God was unjust about that, what else could he be unjust about? Could he lie to us about our salvation? Could he lie to us about eternity? See, God is, he is perfectly just, which means he's perfectly truthful, which means he can't just overlook our sin. But in order to be the justifier, Paul says in Romans 3, and just, Christ had to die in our place upon the cross and bear that sin. But that story and the redemptive work of God doesn't end when Christ died upon the cross and when he was raised from the dead. 
while the salvation work of Jesus is done, this redemptive story continues to be written um, by the generations that follow and will not be wrapped up until the end of time. We see an early record of that continuing story in the book of Acts. From Acts 2, probably, all the way through until Acts 28, we see those to whom the baton was passed continuing this work of carrying the gospel to the nations. And it's still being written today. For, the, for 2,000 years up till now, it's been written, and it's still being written today. And that story one day may be recorded in the annuals of heaven in Acts 29, verse 1 and onwards. I don't know how many chapters of Acts we would have in heaven, but maybe we'll have a book like Acts 2063 or something like that, you know, in verse 9. And it's, and it's a story of, of, of what God did through some part of your life. And it will continue until we get to that point where uh, Revelation 22 and verse 20 is actually manifest. And that's the second to last verse of the Bible where Jesus promises that I am coming soon. And uh, we, like John, must, uh, must in word and in deed, because there is a part we have to play to speed the return of Christ, we must say these words, Amen, come Lord Jesus. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, John and the rest of the disciples were given the most clear command by Jesus. It was the moment when he actually passed the baton on from, I've, this is what I've been doing, now I'm passing it on to you. It was their responsibility to execute the next phase of God's redemptive plan. Those disciples were few in number, 120 gathered in the upper room. Today we are hundreds of millions spread across the earth, maybe even billions of believers that should be living with the same kingdom mission clarity that Christ lived with. Imagine we did. Imagine we lived our lives with that clarity that he gave to those disciples if every one of us lived like that. And the commission Christ gave them, obviously from Matthew 28, verse 19 and 20, which uh, we should almost be able to say, in fact, we should be able to say off by heart, shouldn't we? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, and behold, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Who of you knows what our mission statement is as a church? Anybody? No, you guys should know. Anybody else know what our mission statement is as a church? Shout it out, Dylan, give it. Cornell, give it to us. Yeah? <laughs> now that's pathetic, but there we go. There you go, Dylan, you probably deserve it anyway, because I could... You were like the Holy Spirit whispering into Cornell's ear there. <laughs> Forming family, transforming nations for the glory of God. And uh, we believe that that gives us mission clarity. But what makes it powerful is that it's simply a restatement of Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Given our people and our context, our place and our time, how do we word Matthew 28? And this is it. Forming family. We want to we disciple those that come to Christ, that come in as infants, to become children and then young men and then fathers in the, in, the, in the faith and then release them into this city and into the nations to transform the nations for the glory of God. It's our way of saying, go and make disciples of all nations. And actually, friends, that should be every single one of our personal mission statements. If you say, like, I don't know what my mission um, statement should be for my life, just go right out, Matthew 28, 19, and 20. And it does, of course, we have different gifts and talents and ways that we express it. Dylan's already eating the chocolate. But, um, but, uh, but all of us should have that same, that's our 
true north. That's what we are doing. We are going to make disciples of all nations. And I think that should also be the, the, the mission clarity that every single church has. Every single church should be going and making disciples of all nations in its generation and every generation that follows until Jesus Christ returns. And that made Jesus stand out. His mission clarity, his kingdom mission clarity made him stand out from everybody else. Everyone else just seemed to be wandering around, driven by circumstances. And I was thinking how easy it is to be that kind of person in the world today. Hey, it is so hard to plan anything or, or anticipate what's going to happen or dream anymore. Like, I mean, how many people have had their dream wedding canceled at the last moment or turned from 100 gathering in a beautiful venue to 10 people in their home? And so people, have, I think it's, people are beginning to become fatigued by it and they're not dreaming anymore. But Jesus gives us the opportunity to believe something that's way beyond what's going on around us right now. But Jesus didn't have just mission clarity. He had kingdom culture as well. You see, the, the way Jesus carried out his mission was different from anybody else around him. He was different from the religious leaders. He was different from the, um, the teachers that were around him or for that matter, any other person that had ever lived. And obviously, Jesus was both 100% man and 100% God, and so his divine attributes were infused together and bled into his humanity, and he was perfectly ki kind and perfectly holy and all perfectly loving, and none of us will ever be perfect, and every husband said amen, despite their wives hoping that they had married the perfect man. None of us are. But we can walk along the same path of holiness and love that Jesus walked on. Whenever we do a, a new member's dinner that um, Dylan spoke about happening this week coming, I tell the guys that um, we can all plan to go to the same destination. Say, for example, Doha. And we say, okay, we're going to meet in Doha at such and such a time or whatever. But we can take 20 different routes to get there. One person can fly across. Another person can take a, a boat and sail around. Somebody can drive their car around. I'll jump on my bicycle and cycle there. I'll take a bit longer, but I would eventually get there. One of the things we'd know is that although we've arrived at the same destination, all of our journeys will be so completely different. And I, I want you to remember this, that with God, the journey is as important as the destination. I was uh, in Exodus 13 this morning, and I was just reading about how when the Israelites left Egypt and they were going to go into the promised land, and God says, that he, it says in verse 17, there was a shorter route, but God wanted to take them in a different route. And so the route that we go on, the journey we take is as important to God as the destination that we end up in because in the process, he's accomplishing his purpose for the earth and he's making us more like Jesus Christ. When we only care about the destination, we're just thinking pragmatically. We start to use that phrase that the end justifies the means. And that's just a way of covering up evil means for some sort of so-called noble end. It's like the pastor, not this one obviously, who fleeces his sheep and says, you've got to give, you've got to give for the kingdom of God to be able to move forward. But really what he's wanting to do is make sure that his kingdom moves forward. Or it's like us, when we excuse um, being unkind or being harsh with people just so that we can accomplish um, the, the advancement of the kingdom. We, we can, you know, we, we, we're doing this for the glory of Jesus, but it's not the way that he wants us to do it. And we might end up in the right place, as it were, Jesus might get preached or you might get out there and share the gospel, but actually the way that God wants us to do it is not that way. He wants us to imitate Christ. 
He wants us to follow in His footsteps. And the guardrails that keep us on track so that we can pursue this Jesus-imitating life are our values. And uh, in our Vision magazine, we go through the six values that God's given us, and we, we really want to hold to these values. We, we aspire to live them out consistently. And so I want to give you a chance. If you can tell me one of the values of the church, then I want to bless you with one of these chocolates here. So anybody other than the elders, can you tell me what are the... Huh? Yeah, there we go. Good luck. If you, oh, catch, girl. Okay, double points for you, Robin. Yes. Gospel said it. Close, but not quite there. Anyone else? Come on, I, I want to give these chocolates away. <laughs> on gospel mission. Yeah, you've got that. Next to you. Yeah, failed thing. You can, have, you can have Cornell's chocolates. Good catch. Any others? On gospel mission. Um, what did you say again? Building a team. Inauthentic community. Submitted to the word, empowered by the spirit, and motivated by grace. Who knew those, but you just were too shy to say it? There we go. Oh, good catch. There we go. Claudia, great catch. I want you to do me a favor if you can. Go into this magazine. You can do this, so I don't know why I said that. I want you to do me a favor. I want you to go into this magazine. I want you to go through those values and read the stories and ask yourself three questions. Is this biblical? Why is this important to us? And am I living this out? And are we living this out? Go in, check those questions, because I think those are the guardrails that take us forward. We need to have kingdom mission clarity, kingdom culture, and lastly, we need to have kingdom perseverance. You may have noticed if you shop that it's been quite a few years since Jesus gave that commission in Matthew 28 to go and make disciples of all nations. In fact, it's been many, many generations that have come and gone over the millennia. I want to say, first of all, don't get stressed about that. Peter writing, he says in his second letter, but do not overlook one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. And so the 2,000 years ago, that seems like so long since Jesus gave that commission to his disciples. To God, it's been like two days. It was like Jesus went back to be with the Father on Tuesday and now it's Thursday. I'm coming back soon, he said. It's like, it's, and, the, and so we don't have to get stressed about like it seems so long. Why is he delaying so much? And Peter actually tells us why he's delaying. But even for us, the most we can live in this is, is a lifetime. It's 70 years or 90 years, or if you're really blessed to live 100 or more, that's, that's it. That's the maximum our experience of the delay of Jesus is. But God is God, and He can delay if He wants to, and He tells us the reason why He delays is because He wants as many as possible from the generations of men to be saved and swept into the kingdom. That is the only reason why He delays His return. And what the passing of one generation to the next should teach us today is that each generation must fulfill their mandate. God says this in the scriptures about David, that he had served God's purpose in his own generation. Acts 13, 36, David served God's purpose in his own generation. How are we doing? How are we doing about serving God's purpose in our generation? We've been put at this place and this time for a particular reason. I've been reading through Genesis recently, and I've been a few weeks back, was in Genesis 26, and uh, that's the text actually from which we get our name as a church. Mike Eltringham, we planted a well of life, was reading that some years back as God was moving him to move here, 
And uh, the picture of Isaac digging those wells in the desert was something that resonated with, within him, and hence we got our name, Well of Life. And um, I want to read from Genesis 26, 15 to 22, and just unpack this a little bit in the, in the time that we have left. It says, Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again, and Isaac dug again, and Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Essek because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled also over that. So he called his name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called his name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. We've been talking about this as an eldership, and there are two major things that come out of it. Number one is that there is this, there's a picture here that every generation has to redig the wells. I want you to imagine that we don't, we don't dig a well, and because we've dug a well, there's water. We dig the water, we dig the well to find the water that's there. God, in His wisdom, plants these springs of water, and we go dig to try and find that water. And what happens is when one generation digs it, it causes the life of God, the, the, the water of life, to flow out of those wells into their generation. But then the enemy comes and he blocks those wells up again. And it's one of the reasons why movements so often come to a halt, like, they, they don't keep going like this generation after generation. It's like something happens, and then it sinks down. And then something else rises up, and it sinks down. And that rising up again is what's the responsibility of us as the next generation to go and dig those wells again. The springs of life are there. They, they've never moved, but every generation has to tap into them to bring God's life-giving water to the nations um, of this earth. And I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. The second thing that we see is that there's a cycle. Um, and it's a picture, I think, of what we need to go through, maybe again and again, to see the Great Commission fooled in our generation. Four worlds, Essek and Sitna, which mean, Essek means um, disputing or enmity, and uh, Sitna means quarreling or contention. Whenever we start something new in the kingdom of God, whenever we want to step into a new territory, the enemy is going to resist us. The Bible tells us that again and again. Even if you go to the book of Revelation, when the church was being birthed, there's the enemy sits like a dragon ready to, to eat that child as it's born. See, whenever something new happens in the kingdom of God, the enemy wants to fight it and resist it. And so we have to go through the season of, of um, contending against the enemy, of, of dealing with the quarreling and the disputing over the territory in order to get through. I love the scripture in Jude where he writes in verse, verse 3 of chapter 1. He says, Beloved, Though I was very eager to write to you about a common salvation, I found it necessary to write, appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. The faith was once for all delivered. It's done. There's the message. But every generation must contend for the faith. We need to contend in this season for the faith. The next well is Rehoboth. And that means spacious place. It literally is broad place. But it has the idea of like, I've got space to move. It's, a, it's, a, it's room for flourishing. 
And it's, it speaks about God's favor upon our lives. It speaks about the hundredfold return that Isaac had when he sowed even in this season of famine. And I believe that speaks to us of seasons of profound harvesting. And then um, Sheba, which means oath or covenant. I want to read the next 10 verses from verse 23. From there he went up to Bathsheba, speaking of Isaac, and the Lord appeared to him that same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. This is a covenant moment. God's um, reestablishing the covenant that he made with Abraham, with Abraham's son Isaac. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. There comes a well again. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahusath, his advisor, and Pekal, the commander of the army, Isaac said to them, Why have you coming to me? Why have you come to me seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we plainly see, how beautiful is this? We plainly see that the Lord has been with you. When you're in a Rehoboth season, everyone can see that the Lord has been with you. And so we said, let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done nothing to you, and have done to you nothing but good, and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. When you're in a Rehoboth season, you are the blessed of the Lord. So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. And in the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths. And Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told him about the well that had been dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba. Therefore the name of the city is Bathsheba to this day. Sheba is a space of covenanting with God and covenanting with man. See, when we get to the place of Sheba, when we, we're in the Rehoboth place that leads us into the place of covenanting, where we actually get to, that's how we serve our generation, by fulfilling the covenant um, promises that God had given to Abraham. He said to Abraham, I will multiply you, and I will bless you to be a blessing. And when God brings us into that Rehoboth place, it's a place of multiplying and being blessed to be a blessing, and, uh, and that's what he is calling us into. As we endure past the quarreling and a past the enmity and a past the contention, we come into the spacious place and it leads us into a covenanting with men as well. Partnerships because God's favor is upon us. And I believe there are partnerships in this room here that God has called us together as uh, Joseph and Jackie came on the stage to pray to become a part of the life of the church. That partnership is being, a, there's a, there's a um, Sheba moment that's taking place there. But also there will be spiritual and partnerships are established because people are coming to salvation. And um, the, the, the cycle of digging and then re-digging, of um, enmity, contention, favor, and covenant is something that we have to go through again and again. Not just once in our life or once in a generation, though I think there are generational cycles. But in our lives it happens as well. Maybe you're in a season where you're needing to contend in your marriage or contend for your children or contend for your business, or contend for this relationship, or for your health, or for something else. And God's saying to you, I want you to step out and take new territory. And you're just finding like the enemy is, is fighting against you every step of the way. And you've got you've to keep going, because on the other side of this, if you keep digging the wells, on the other side is Rehoboth, is that spacious place of favor and fruitfulness that God has for you that will bring us into covenanting. covenanting. And we, we sometimes think it's a negative thing, like, 
Like, don't you, when you get into those Rehoboth moments after having gone through the fighting, you know, like, like your marriage has come to that place where it's like, you know, the angels are singing and like rose petals are falling all around you and you're thinking, good, it's going to stay like this forever. And it doesn't because God's going to call you into something more and you go into the next season of your marriage. And so you move into deeper wells. And so there's contention and there's quarreling, not between you and your wife necessarily, but fighting for your marriage again. And then you come back into the Rehoboth place. But we have this idea that like, I don't want to go into contention and fighting, so I'm just going to shrink here. And that's why you have to have kingdom perseverance to pursue what God has called us into and say, I'm going to go into that season again in my marriage. I'm going to go into that season again for my children. I'm going into that season again for my business or my finances or my health or for the kingdom of God to move forward. It's how we serve our generations, how we take new ground. I said I'd come back to the idea that we have to redig the wells. In 2014, who was here when we did the Silicon Aces plant? Who, who was part of the church? So, see, this church changes a lot, unbelievably quickly. In 2014, we felt God call us to go plant a congregation in Silicon Oasis. And so about, I think about 30 people left from this congregation, which was meeting in the hotel. And we sent some leaders across, Burtis and Ryan, and were eventually, after we got the thing planted, established there. And uh, that church uh, congregation just grew. It was beautiful. It was, God was doing a wonderful work there. It was a real both place. We were, we were delighting in it. And from that place, God actually used it. And that church became the core that would plant Russell Kamer. And so Well of Life Russell Kamer, which is led by Burtis and Diesel, is flourishing in, in, up there in Rack. They're, they're, they're meeting weekly now again in the Hall of the Seventh-day Adventists. God is really blessing them, and we're so grateful what happened there. But Silicon Oasis came to a complete dead end. They kicked us out of one venue. We were kicked out of another venue. Those that were left eventually ended up back in this auditorium and just became a part of this congregation here. And uh, we feel like the enemy's gone in and stopped up a well and that we need to go in and redig the well again. So interesting that in um, Sheikh Muhammad's vision for 2040, he sees Dubai as becoming a city of five cities. And you know what one of those cities is? Say it out. Silicon Oasis. And we li- it's almost like God is saying, I want you to go back and redig that well. And there's other wells. There's other springs that even generations before us perhaps have dug that we've got to go in and plant wells into those areas. RJ, won't you come up, please? You're around. Hi there. Thanks, buddy. Linda and, Ar- and I arrived in Dubai in, uh, I, think, I think it was the, the 15th or 11th of August, 2011. So this year will be our 10th year, yeah. And um, for the first couple of weeks, we actually stayed in a couple of South Petrus and Erica, and then we were moved to the, uh, the Gloria Hotel. And uh, we stayed there for about three weeks in this, um, in this room. What I loved about it was I, I was able to look down over Sheikh Zayed Road, which is obviously it's just below us there. What I didn't love was that, um, I don't know if it was the anxiety of the move and you know, the big change of life, but I, I really battled um, to sleep at night. And on September the 3rd, 2011, I'd been in Dubai to give my family for about three weeks. I wrote this blog, which I found the other day. And I want to read it over you, some of it. It's quite long, but I want you to just stick with it. Because I think it, it expresses something of God's heart for this city and our call to this city. And I think we get to share it together. I entitled it, He's Not Sleeping Either. It's two o'clock in the morning. And below my balcony, the freeway is alive with cars rushing this way and that. 
this city doesn't sleep. There's a frenetic energy being exerted to build a city that will last. Photographs from 20 years ago show Dubai as a few modest high-rise buildings alongside a very vacant-looking Sheikh Zayed Road, surrounded by sand and more sand. Today, however, the city skyline dwarfs many major cities in the world and includes Burj Khalifa, the world's, the world's tallest building. Most people know that Dubai's oil will run out very soon. In economic terms, a day is as close as tomorrow. It does have a generous benefactor in Abu Dhabi, but even that oil will not last forever. On the radio the other day, I heard an Emirati lady expressing gratitude for the leaders in the UAE who have ensured a better life for all its citizens. And well, she might, especially as the plight of other Arabs has been brought to the fore, most notably in Libya, where despite vast oil reserves, the citizens remain poor and oppressed. The leaders of Dubai seem to be of a different ilk, visionary in their determination to use the oil and gas reserves to secure a future for this nation and its citizens. Sheikh Zayed, after whom this incessantly busy 20-lane freeway that cuts a path through the high rises is named, set the tone with his leadership. He saw an opportunity to establish the UAE as an economic and tourist hub, a vision which his successors continue to strive towards. Whatever the future holds for this wonderful city, there's one thing we can be certain about. God is a part of this moment. Acts 18 tells us that in His sovereignty, God determines the places and the times for people so that they might reach out to Him and be saved. Our story as a people of faith, goes, going back to Abraham, has been fulfilled with moments where political leaders have unknowingly made decisions which God has foreordained. Dubai, the city whose foundations are ironically built on sand, is not simply a man's dream. Dubai is a preordained opportunity for God to reveal Himself as Redeemer to the nations of the earth who have gathered in this place. Now it's 2.30 in the morning and Dubai is still not asleep. The hope of promise fulfilled is driving men to build cities like these. God is not sleeping either. And He is also building a city one that delivers on an eternal promise. Whatever city you are living in today, be assured that your energy and prayer spent on advancing His kingdom are drawing people to an eternal city whose foundations are built upon the rock. Would you stand with me, please? I want to give a charge to us this morning. I want to give two charges. One is for those that don't yet know Christ, who uh, with absolute clarity understood why the Father had sent Him to this earth, to go to that cross and to die in your place, in my place, upon the cross, to bear our sin, that He might destroy the power of sin and death, so that, friends, we could be reconciled to God, our Father and Creator, adopted into His family, redeemed liberated that we would spend an eternity with him I'm absolutely as sure as I am that the stage is beneath my feet that if I were to depart this earth at this moment I would be standing before my father if you do not have that certainty your house is built upon the sand and not upon the rock and the invitation to you this morning is to come to Christ and to receive the free gift of forgiveness 
that His death upon the cross 2,000 years ago, a fact of history, but that has eternal and spiritual consequences um, was done for you. And if that is you this morning, I'm going to ask you, please, to come and speak to me after this meeting. Come speak to Linda or Sergio Michelle or Matt, or maybe somebody that you came with if you um, are prepared to have that conversation and say, I, I need to know more about this. And it would be my delight to share with you and if it came to that place to pray with you to receive Christ as your Lord and your Savior. You can have no true mission clarity until you've come to know the one that is defines all things. The second charge is for us. That we'd stop living our lives like we're bouncing around from one event to another. Like circumstances are just deciding what we're here for. And whether you're here in this auditorium or you're watching online, I say God has called you to go and make disciples of all nations. To do it um, um, following the, the, the values of Scripture, the way of Christ, imitating Him, and to persevere through every challenge that you go through. And maybe right now, you're in the place of Essek. Maybe you're in the place of Sitna. Maybe your life is full of contention and the enmity, and you want to give up, and you're thinking, like, what is, what is, what else is there? And God's answer, there's Rehoboth. There's spacious place. There's room to flourish. There's favor. And there's Sheba. There's covenant. There's oath. There's alliances. There's partnerships. There's growth. So why don't you close your eyes as I just pray over us this morning. many of us are in different seasons and maybe in different areas of our lives we're in different seasons some of us our marriage is in Rehoboth our relationship with our children is in Essek our finances might be in Sheba but Lord we know that there is a cycle that you want us to go through that moves forward continually that ends with that final entry into Rehoboth the final entry into the spacious place and we hear those words well done good and faithful servant enter into my rest I pray for us as a people for everyone this morning that calls themselves a Christian Lord I have nothing to say on this subject to non-Christians to those that are still on a spiritual journey but to everyone who calls themselves a follower of Jesus Christ I want to speak a word of um, clarity, mission clarity, kingdom mission clarity over their lives. That this word that you gave to your disciples on that hill before you ascended, go and make disciples of all nations, is our mission. In this city, and when we go from the city into whatever place that you send us into, that is our mission, Lord. And I pray that it would begin to bring clarity and purpose and meaning to every single life that is here. I pray the fog that has brought confusion over so many would dissipate as the rising sun, Jesus himself, shines upon their lives and causes the way to be made clear before them. I pray that none of us would ever be like Alice, who had no idea where she was supposed to be going and so it made no difference how she lived her life. 
doesn't matter where I live or what I do. It matters for us, Lord God. We live where you want us to live. We do what you want us to do because it all works together to serve that kingdom purpose of making disciples of all nations. I pray your grace upon us. I pray, Father, for such a fire to be set in our hearts. I pray that from this morning that some would realize the calling upon their lives and, and, and the way they've been kind of going around a mountain will break camp now to head off, Lord God, into the promised land of what you have for them. And I pray this in the name of our precious Lord and Savior, my hero, my king, my friend, my savior, my redeemer, my Lord God Almighty, Jesus Christ. Amen.